0: If you've been so brainwashed into thinking that you get all of your nutrient from whole foods, which is where it needs to start from, absolutely, and that there's no place and no scientific study that shows the benefits of certain micronutrients, I'm sorry, Dave, this is something that we've got to correct.
1: Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance.
2: You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Let's talk about what you know about which specific genes make you prone to exaggerated inflammatory viral responses and lower respiratory problems. Because you, you guys actually know this. At the DNA company, you are, in fact, you and I had a conversation about this long before COVID existed. Uh, so uh, share with our listeners, what are the genes that if they, if they have access to their genetic data, they might want to look at? Because if you're one of those people, isolation and maybe even doing some stuff preventatively would be good. What are Indeed. the genes?
0: Indeed. So the first thing's first is let's just repeat and reemphasize. Ultimately, the real, you know, knockout punch is coming from something called cytokine storms, which is just a sexy word of saying a deregulated, hyped up, amped up inflammatory response. Okay. So ultimately... If you know yourself to be that individual that has those exaggerated inflammatory responses just in general, if you know that you're that individual that when the common cold and or flu, forget SARS-CoV-2 for the time being, comes around, that you tend to spiral into a more pneumonia-like presentation and so on and so forth. If you are the individual that your innate anti-inflammatory response is muted. In other words, your innate inflammatory response is exaggerated more than often, more than not. This is a risk category. And it is for those, it is for that response, we can look at genetic phenomena. And at the top of that genetic response or the genes that control your anti-inflammatory capacity is your methylation capacity overall, and that's not just MTHFR, and you threw that one at me at the very start, and you had me laughing before we even started this podcast, Dave. Please, come on, the Dave Asprey followers by now know MTHFR does not equal methylation or vice versa, okay? So it's a remarkable cascade, starting with actually more important than MTHFR is the SHMT1, serine hydroxymethyltransferase gene, far more important actually than MTHFR. Explain
2: what that is. And there are some people who are new listeners who probably don't even know MTHFR. Um, and so don't be feeling like you're left out of the cool kids club if you don't know about this. Uh, th- these are just the very common things that people have. Uh, And a lot of people were saying, I don't know why stuff that I think should help doesn't help. And they kind of get stuck on either recovering or hacking their health. MTHFR is just the lowest hanging fruit. So define it real quick and then define SHTM1. I don't even know much about that one.
0: So perfect. So methylation is this one of the most brilliant, if not most beautiful examples of what we call cellular cascades. Methylation is the process by which when your cells absorb a number of nutrients but at the top of it B12 and B9 those beautiful micronutrients in the B complex family together with B6 and the other B complexes when your cells absorb B12 and B9 your cells do something they take these two micronutrients on a cycle and methylation is the thing that does that and to do that thing which we'll get we won't get into the weeds here there are several genes that must act in a perfectly timed orchestra so think of it this way think of a five person relay race all all of the listeners out there, and the job of this relay race, obviously, is to finish the race, and you're passing a baton, first runner to second runner. Second runner grabs the baton, passes it to third. If the first runner at any point in time decides, you know what, I'm the fastest, I'm just going to run and not going to pass on the baton, you're disqualified. Methylation is a cyclical process that requires one gene, then another, then another then another to do its job in a perfectly timed cascade the first of these genes are shmt1 serine hydroxy transferase it begins to biotransform your folate when you're b9 folate green leafy vegetables when it gets into when the folate gets into the cells shmt1 biotransforms that folate getting it prepared for MTHFR, methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase, which further biotransforms your B9 into something called 5 tetrahydrofolate, 5-MTHF. Now that B9 has the baton. And what is the baton here? A methyl group a little CH3 methyl group. Now, these CH3 methyl groups are super-duper active. There are certain groups, there are certain noities, oxidants, nitrous groups, sulfuric groups, methyl groups, that when you take a methyl group, CH3, and you bind it to something, to a substrate, the behavior of that thing that you've now bound CH3 to changes. When you bind CH3 to your estrogens, they behave differently. They're no longer estrogenizable. When you bind CH3 to dopamine and to no adrenaline, they're no longer neurologically active, and so on and so forth. Importantly, when you bind CH3 to your DNA, the way your genes are expressed changes. So the body is going to do everything to control this, re- this all important reaction known as methylation. And it goes SHMT1, MTHFR, MTRR, MTR. Coming in on the side, you've got fucosyl transferase. You've got TCN2, transcobalamin. Without getting into the weeds, it's this beautiful cascade. Beautiful cascade.
2: Okay. And by the way, guys, that was without the weeds and and a lot of people are going what but here's the thing it's okay to reach out for help biohacking which is one of the reasons that i called you and i did my dna company results and we spent 2 hours going through my results and you're explaining stuff cuz i honestly i don't know those pathways without looking at them on a, on a sheet of paper but you you did find things a, a couple different alleles that are tied to that exaggerated inflammatory response if people have those It's not that they're more likely to get the virus, it's that they're more likely to get a huge inflammatory cascade and end up in the hospital unless they block it. Um, What are the genes that people should watch out for?
0: I would say at the top of the list is the SHMT1, certainly the MTHFR. But But that's not one
2: gene, either one of those. So what are the LLs they should be looking at?
0: So in the SHMT1 gene, one of the most functional, so if you have access to your data, 23andMe or otherwise, DNA company, look up the addresses that we look for genes. The SHMT1 address that you want to look up is the RS1979277. And and forgive me, that's the way my weird brain works. So the RS1979277 is the SHMT1 SNP. You want to ensure, I mean, not that you have any choice in the matter, but the A version, the alpha apple version allele of the RS-1979277 SHMT1 gene is the version that is suboptimal. These are the individuals that tend to have hyperimmune, not immune, so no, no, my that's a completely false, inaccurate, hyperinflammatory Uh Reactions, hyperinflammatory reactions.
2: It, what percentage of people are we talking about?
0: About fifteen percent of the general population. Slightly higher in, if I'm not mistaken, I'm, and if, don't quote me in this, but slightly higher in the Eastern European population. But generally speaking, about fifteen percent of the human population can carry one A. That's 15% carrying 1A. Uh, less than that, so we estimate that less than 10% carries 2As. If you carry 2As on your SHMT1, your anti-inflammatory potential is significantly below average. Dave, very quickly, those are the people when they get things like Lyme disease, for example, Dave.
2: Yeah, like, I, like
0: me. Do- oh. Well, thankfully, you're a double G. So by God's grace. No,
2: but Lyme disease kicked my ass. Actually, it was more toxic mold that causes Lyme, but that's another discussion.
0: Yeah, that's a different one. But if you're a double A SHMT1, you get Lyme neuroborreliosis, you don't do very well unless you really get that bugger out of the body. So,
2: so for, for that population, I, I love looking at these risk populations because guess what, guys? They're the the perfect guinea pigs because if something works to, to restore a proper inflammatory response in the people who are weakest and you do the same thing, you're probably going to get a robust response um, if what you're doing is is herbal or pharmaceutical or even lifestyle. It's not a guarantee, uh, but it, it's it's likely unless you're dealing with specific epigenetic switches for those things, which are an on-off situation. That's not what I'm talking about. Nicely said. Nicely said. So, for those, for that population, and thus for the rest of us, are there specific things that work? I have some things I want to run past you, but I want your thoughts before I pollute them with mine.
0: Well, the first thing is it's more for what. Well, it's both. There's a there's a double side here. There is what you don't do, and then what you do. So people, the people that are the SHMT1 for that SNP that we spoke of, if you carry the A, and definitely if you carry the double A allele, what we and many others are starting to see is that you don't respond well to methylfolate. In fact, you've got to be very careful taking too much methyl B9. Rather, you respond way better, all things equal to formal folate which is otherwise known as folinic acid and i have no clue why that is considered a pharmaceutical here in canada it's a prescription folinic acid which is just a you know version of folate is considered a prescription drug here and it's sold at ridiculously you know elevated And that's acid. the
2: same as 5mthfr or 5 folate. In, in five methyl.
0: So, so now that's the methyl five methyl tetrahydrofolate. This is five formyl tetrahydrofolate.
2: Yeah, okay. Thank you for that. I I actually thought folinic acid was another name for it, and you're saying there's a difference. This is interesting. Okay. Oh, thank you big for that.
0: Difference. Big big difference. So the the synonyms for the methyl, where we have methyl folate, five methyl folate, five methyl tetrahydrofolate, five five. Those are all of those. Quite in, in, in distinction to that is the formal folate. That's the folinic acid. These AAs tend to respond far better. So, in other words, you know, Dave, when you because this is talked about so much in the autistic population, and you've got that subgroup of autistic children that you give them the five methylfolate, that many other parents say this was a godsend. But the five methylfolate just seems to, for some children, it increases their irritability. It increases some of their uh, phenotypic responses, oftentimes they're the AAs, and you get a much better response when you give them the folinic acid, which is the formal folate in distinction to the methylfolate.
2: Okay, that is uh, okay, So, but you're not saying everyone should take folinic acid. Uh, okay, so what are the things that are, are likely to reduce the inflammatory risk in everyone, including that population?
0: So, you know, figuring out where you are, by the way, per what we just said, and by the way, per extension, and again, I just forgive me here, Dave, equivalently you have the B12 story because if you did not know your B12, the MTR and MTRR versions of those genes, you might just be taking methyl B12 thinking it's the best version and it certainly is the best for most people, but adenosyl B12 can be a better option for some individuals depending on the MTR, MTRR. So the first thing here is figuring where you are on that scale figuring which of these versions boost and optimize your methylation. Optimizing your methylation function, all things equal, is one of the best things you can do for health. And Dave, you've just nailed this in the past. So optimizing methylation cellular function, start there. Start there. Now, inflammation doesn't begin and end with methylation. I, I
2: got to pause for a second there. So a lot of people listening have ordered uh, your DNA tests. They have their DNA from sometime in the last 10 years, they've had it done. But there's a much larger number of people listening who haven't done that. They're not going to know their MTHFR status and they're looking around going, I got to order some supplements or not. So let's assume that they don't have access to their genetic information. Uh, maybe they're encouraged to get it now. Uh, but if you didn't know and you're saying I'm worried, maybe I think I might be one of those, uh, one of those high risk populations because you know, my grandmother got pneumonia or something, or maybe you've had it. Uh, what would you do to make sure that inflammatory thing doesn't so, hit you?
0: So here we go. Here we go. At the top of it, again, please, for the listeners, I'm not a medical doctor making a prescription, but we're talking about just the healthy native things we can use. NAC, number one. Ah, I
2: love it. That's on my list. All right. Well, let's get your entire list, then I'm going to look for everything's things missing. Doses, how much?
0: We typically look at NAC, 250 milligrams as a base dose, which you can take... Twice a day, three times a day. It's very safe. Up to five, six, seven, eight hundred milligrams. We like to start with two hundred and fifty milligrams. And here's a little biohack: NACs two hundred and fifty milligrams can be accentuated in terms of its both. It seems its overall function when combined with an equal amount of ascorbic acid, vitamin C. So two hundred and fifty NAC, two hundred and fifty vitamin C. That's it together. for vitamin C. Is two hundred and fifty? No, I'm saying as a combined dose, of of which you can then double down on that as needed.
2: Okay. So how much vitamin C would you take irrespective of NAC?
0: You know, me personally, because of, mind you, all my other eating habits and looking at where I'm getting vitamin C from, I personally don't go above 500 milligrams unless I am in diastrates, me personally. Okay. Okay, And by that, by that I mean, you know, as a healthy dose, because mind you, I'm eating foods that are rich. I'm eating my bell peppers. I'm eating other foods for which I know I'm getting a good amount of vitamin C from just in any event.
2: Okay, got it. So when it comes to vitamin C, I I normally do about a gram uh, in a day, you know, 500 milligrams twice or a gram once. Perfectly um, fine. But now at this time, I'm doing like, oh, four to six
0: grams. And just so that you know, some of the best studies of intensive cure unit interventions, IV vitamin C has been quite successfully used at the levels that you're talking about, Dave, to majorly quiesce the cytokine storm. So again, what we're trying to do here and what I'm doing and what you're correcting me on is we've got to look at where we are. Are we prophylactic? Are we showing symptoms or are we then dealing with?
2: Okay. I'm thinking more prophylactic, but if you're showing symptoms, let's actually, let's go through these in both of those. This is going to be really helpful for people um, I've just—I mean, I—I've studied this stuff for twenty years around controlling my own body's crazy, out-of-control inflammatory responses. So I feel like I've got like whack-a-mole, like no one's business on on cytokines. But I—I uh, I really want to pick your brains. Okay, so I'm going to ask you all these things for prophylactic use. Okay, now I'm—I'm I'm concerned. I'm in a high-risk situation, but I don't actually have it. I don't have symptoms of it anyway. Okay, so NAC two fifty a couple times a day, vitamin C two fifty a couple times a day, and and that's probably it. Okay, and then what else?
0: So typically, those two things typically combined. I would ensure that I would ensure that I'm getting my vitamin D levels. Again, we have to know where we are geographically, and so on and so forth. But I would be shooting in these times for at least 2,000 IU's daily, and that's of a D3. Okay, and again, you all know yourselves. You all know if you're taking higher than that, just naturally to keep your levels up. I'm speaking here without the knowledge of where you are, but generally speaking, we're not talking 500 IUs here for the vast majority of individuals. Okay, so just getting that vitamin D up. I would also ensure that you're balancing your methylation. What does that mean? It means that you're taking the appropriate B9, the appropriate B12, whether you're getting it dietarily or not, and then you're making sure, but because B6 is And the rest of the bees is the helper bees. So in other words, a basic good basal B100, B50 type uh, baseline important here to ensure that that methylation cycle during these periods, at least, are up- operating at an optimal level. Now, next, one of the first micronutrients that is depleted during a viral infection, we have no reason to believe not SARS-CoV-2 as well, is selenium. Selenium is a cofactor to the GPX enzyme, the glutathione peroxidase enzyme, which is radically important when combined with SOD2, SOD2, superoxide dismutase 2, combined with GPX are the two enzymes that control your redox, your redox homeostasis. Let's pause there very quickly, Dave. So that redox, how your cells are handling your oxidants, you want A certain level of oxidants in your cells, by the way, you just don't want too much of it. The homeostasis of not having too little, not having too much, is super-duper important, and it's called the redox homeostasis. Here's a very, very important point, Dave. Viral infections, and it seems including SARS, if we can judge by the original SARS of 18 years ago, what does it do? Viral infections typically increase oxidants in your cells. There is typically increased oxidants in your cells upon viral infection. Here comes the the real zinger. Increased oxidants increases viral replication. So we call this the viral loop. So a virus enters your cell, your cells now start to accumulate oxidants The accumulation of the oxidants tends to prefer and send the virus into replication, which is the very thing you don't want. So during viral replications, the ability to quiesce that increase in oxidation is going to be radically important. And the other thing that's happening is the viral replication is usurping. It's using up radically important micronutrients such as selenium, Selenium and NAC; these are things that we saw. NAC, vitamin C. What we've said before. Uh, selenium, I don't have. I'm going to be very careful. I'm not sure what the dose is. Please forgive me. They, it's so it's all right sure to, what to what look up is. an
2: appropriate dose. Now, what about form? Um, there's one group says sodium selenate, and there's another. That's an older form uh, that goes in very fast, and then there's another form that sticks around for a long time, which is uh, methano. Yes. Methanol, methionine. It's, it's, it's a methionine group, but there's some weird thing on the front of it. I don't remember what it is. Anyway, um, anyways, that one. <laughs> so the two seleniums. Which one do
0: you like? Yes. Don't know. Okay, have to be have to be honest with you. Don't know. I,
2: I would say whichever one you can get is probably the right one at this point. Um, and the people I know,
0: yeah, the one that you mentioned is the one that I take. Which of course my mind is now looping as to what that full name. Yeah, is. Yeah,
2: it's it's but, a very long weird word. Um, I. I Given given all the all the weird people that I know, biochemists, uh, you know the 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 people who who are immersed in this, I actually think the sodium selenate is probably better, but it's easier to overdose on it, and it has a very short half life in the body. But it probably gets used more effectively. That said, take what you can get and be careful on your dosing. All right, what about yes. zinc?
0: Absolutely, absolutely doses and, and in, forms you know, that you like. Please, again, please forgive me, uh, the, the piconnate, is it? Zinc-
2: uh, there's zinc picolinate.
0: Picolinate, all right. Yeah. And somewhere in the realm of about 15 milligrams, again, everyone out there, you know, get the form you can get. And obey or speak to someone that knows better, like the Dave's. And, you know, Dave, do you you have some of these recommendations? But zinc is definitely up there.
2: I do make a copper zinc orotate. And orotate's interesting because it it slots itself into the, the mitochondria in a different way than most forms. I also like zinc carnosine, but I don't make one.
0: There you go. So definitely the second. I did not know what you just said about the combination with the zinc and copper. I did not know that.
2: I just have copper and zinc together because they kind of balance each other out. If you have too much zinc, you tend to deplete copper and Depliever. vice versa.
0: Very good point. Very good point.
2: And, and so I, I put those together as a stack. But the orotate or erotic or, 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 or acid form is has really cool, interesting studies. It's it's mostly unknown. And my goal is to make stuff I can't already just buy because it's easier to buy it with someone else based <laughs> with <for> the R&D. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so, Absolutely. Okay. so selenium, zinc, D3, vitamin C, and NAC. Anything else you put in that stack?
0: Right now, I mean, these are what. That's this is to be honest with you. That's my stack. That's my stack.
2: I have a a couple. Okay, so this is your prophylactic stack. All right. Someone just says, "All right, I just started uh, coughing. I'm getting tired. I can't taste anything. I'm pretty darn sure I'm coming down with something." What do you change or add to your stack? What do you change or add to your stack?
0: Excellent question. I'm going to, so first and foremost, again, I really urge everyone to understand I'm not an acute interventionist, but I would then at that juncture, I would really start paying attention to getting up my vitamin C's to the levels that Dave was talking about. Um, Probably don't do as much of the NAC as vitamin C. So in other words, you can top off NAC way sooner than you can top off vitamin C.
2: Two grams max, I would say, per day.
0: Yeah, exactly. 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 So, so you know, I, I would start doing that. One of the things about NAC is that it breaks the disulfide bond in the mucosal secretion. So in other words, simply saying it's just a really good, what do you call that? A muco, it, it gets the mucus out of the system. Mucolytic. Mucolytic. There we go. There we go. All right. So I would definitely be doing that. You know, Dave and I, I please forgive me here, everyone, major disclaimer coming up. But I have just found this, and I've found others who found this as well. I have found that a puff of hydrogen peroxide, and an inhaled puff of hydrogen peroxide, it has become part of my daily routine. And it is, in my opinion, and again, don't ask me for the science of it. I mean, obviously we know hydrogen peroxide and it's, but i found it to be a gem of a gem of a gem. Prophylactically, I would do it once or so in the morning. If I see symptomatically, I would do it five times a day, Three to five puffs.
2: You're doing when you say puffs. You're using a spray bottle of three percent while there inhaling.
0: You, there you go. Yeah. So it's sort of like you know,
2: like a, like some you would have sunscreen or bug spray or something. And like a, yeah. So just just,
0: just okay. something that gets a nice vaporizable. Another something you can breathe in, and so you breathe out, and then on the breathe in, you go, you know, get a couple of puffs in.
2: The the guy who's who's probably most responsible for that work who's alive today is Frank Schallenberger, who's been on the show. Beautiful. And do you know, Frank? I don't. okay. He's uh, one of the the I'd call him the the grandfathers of ozone therapy. And I, I've referenced his mitochondrial research uh, very extensively in Headstrong. And he has a, a intravenous hydrogen peroxide protocol that's worked for tuberculosis, and it' was worked for a very long time. But you can use a nebulizer as well. And they're in short supply right now, but it's this little plastic cup thing that makes kind of a mist when you run air through it. And you can also get ultrasonic ones, uh, but what you do then is you put a few drops of hydrogen peroxide in the thing, and then it looks kind of like you're vaping, but you're vaping water vapor with hydrogen peroxide to get very deep in the lungs. I love it that you said that uh, because as a preventative, every time you go out, you might as well do it because it's in the mouth. Uh, but if you are getting sick, man, I'm I'm surprised and happy that you mentioned hydrogen peroxide.
0: hugely hugely beneficial. It's magic again, prophylactically. It's not something I do just every every day, but a puff, but for symptom symptomologically, if something is happening, I would get up to five puffs five times a day, and it's still very safe.
2: Uh, got it. That is interesting. It may also stain your clothes. Uh, watch out if you' if you're using three percent like that, you, you might you might have an interesting response. Um so also if you've bled anywhere, it'll uh, it's really good after a murder scene. It just cleans things right up. Uh, <laughs> just, I, I, learned that, uh, I learned that on dexter. i I, I don't, it's not from personal experience actually. The truth of the matter is, when I lived in a house with toxic mold as a child, I had ten nosebleeds a day. I'm not joking; it was just a constant thing. Just I'd walk around, and blood would just spurt out of my nose. It was really good for dating, and uh, <laughs> oh, God. I, I did figure out the hydrogen peroxide gets blood stains out really good because I was like, you know, just just don't stand in the spatter zone around me, and, and we're all good. Uh, so, uh, aside from that, I think it's great. What else do you do? You're starting to get sick.
0: That that's that's. I mean, again, that's my deck. Up to and including, and of course, we can start getting, now we go into the pharmaceutics, now we're going to call someone. Please, by the way, everyone out there, if you are listening and if you feel you're going, you know, in terms of uh, respiratory distress, first and foremost, don't just, bef- if you know yourself, don't just be rushing off to your doctors or to the hospital. Please call ahead. Speak to someone if you can. Have someone that loves you speak to someone because we've really got to be careful about what we're doing. And it's just, that's just a disclaimer to say, listen, guys, we got to be responsible.
2: Okay. For a seven day free trial. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds, and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose optimized photo biomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body, and those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells, and you change your life. For more information, visit Um, arrcled.com. I did a whole podcast, a mini podcast, where I'm just like, hey, guys, here's all the stuff I know about IL-6, the inflammatory cytokine that is uh, the primary thing that's causing the cytokine storm and there's more than 40 studies i think that i referenced not that i necessarily put the asterisks but i was them as i as i went through the podcast from memory and whatnot and uh the one that stands out is something i always take when i fly and it's called andrographis uh, which is an herb that has multiple studies about respiratory infections and viruses 20 percent uh lower uh lower duration and a similar reduction in the likelihood of getting it. So I like that. It also drops IL-6 directly in studies. I like that stuff because I don't want IL-6. It's oftentimes paired with echinacea. Yeah. So I I think that is really worth taking if you start getting symptoms and probably if just if you might have been exposed.
0: Yeah. Dave, how do you play off the, um, and just because I don't know, and again, just having the opportunity for me to you and you to your audience, how do you play off of echinacea in the pre-symptom versus post-symptom? I hear certain things about when you take echinacea and then when you don't. Do you have a take on that?
2: They say you don't want to take it chronically. You know, so taking it for more than six or eight weeks, both endographics and echinacea, they tell you not to, because you need some IL-6. If you suppress IL-6 dramatically, and these are two of the, well, endographics is one of the most potent ones, and there's a few other things. So I would say you want to pulse it. So if, if you went, you know, you went shopping and you, you know, licked the shopping cart, uh, maybe you ought to take it for a few days because if it's going to get you, it's going to get you then. And the second you have a little bit of a symptom, t- you can take it for a couple of days. Uh, like last week, it, we've been so, uh, self-isolating pretty darn well. My daughter's like, "Daddy, my throat is a little bit." I'm like, "Yeah, take some andrographis along with the other, you know, vitamins." I just did an Instagram post with all the vitamins I have my kids on right now, uh, and uh, so she took it for two days. Like, I actually don't have a sore throat anymore. I'm like, All right, stop taking it. That's fine. Yeah. And clearly, that was not uh, the virus. Well, who knows? Maybe it was, but it's highly unlikely, just given that where did she get it? So uh, I, I look at that stuff, and then I look at uh, turmeric or curcumin.
0: Good, yeah. excellent, excellent.
2: And there are studies on IL six on that. And the the mistake people make there is they take it with black pepper extract, which increases inflammation because it pokes holes in your gut and lets lipopolysaccharides through. And there's studies about that. So, look, black pepper is not required with turmeric. There's many other safer ways to get it into the into the the body. Uh, and the formula that I make doesn't have that. But what it does have is something called boswellia, which also has studies for IL six. And there's something called stefania root, which is a hard to find Chinese medicine that just completely stops uh, uh, some of the cytokines besides IL-6. And maybe it's not completely stopping, but for me as someone who's had toxic mold, who's had Lyme disease and had chronic inflammation for much of my life, if I take that stuff uh, on a regular basis, stefania root, Boswellia um, slash frankincense is another name for it. And I I do that. I don't get the chronic inflammation. It 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 takes care of the cytokine storm, and it's not even a storm. It just takes care of cytokines that are too high in me anyway. So I, I tell people, if you take high doses of that stuff and you're not sick, you know what you're going to do you're going to suppress immunity.
0: Yeah, it's so important that distinction. So important. Uh,
2: so prophylactically, I take a normal dose, and if I'm getting sick, I'm like I crank that dose right on up, uh, and it it seems to be a particularly important. I, I also, to your point. Uh, I will nebulize hydrogen peroxide. I'll also nebulize uh, colloidal silver. There's good good evidence about that. Or a few drops of Lugol's or nascent iodine in one per, or in a 0.9% or basically 1% saline solution. The reason you want to nebulize a 1% saline is putting pure water mist without salt in it into the lungs in high doses can actually cause an opposite effect of what you're looking for. And it's actually really important. It's not that hard to make 1% saline solution. You can Google how to do it um, You also don't want to use tap water. It's just for people listening, you know these things because you're a doctor. I get mine out of an IV bag because I'm lazy. Um, and I have IV bags because I'm a dork. But um, for most of us, it's you boil the water first and then you add the salt and then you put it in a sterile container and it's all good to go for a while, um, especially if you add iodine. Uh, but the, those are the things I'd be looking at uh,
0: as well as ozone therapy. I'm doing what's, your ozone. On, what's your take on Allison having a bit of, you know, just... You know,
2: it, there's it probably works. I, I'm a fan of of garlic, uh, and Allison comes from garlic. It's the active ingredient, in garlic, uh, just for people listening, and onions to a certain extent, uh, the whole allium family. The, um, I don't think taking it on a regular basis is particularly good for you. Lots of people, I'm taking garlic because it's good for me. When I was a raw vegan, I did it all the time and and all that. But it does have unusual effects, uh, I think, cognitively, especially at higher doses. So I say, if you're getting sick, yes. But what I where I go before Allison is I go to oregano leaf extract uh, and oregano oil extract. They're they're different, and there are studies for viruses around OLE as well as olive leaf, leaf extract. And my particular favorite one that I think is also better than Allison is uh, hydroxytyrosol, which is the primary antioxidant in olive oil. Uh, and you pull that stuff out. A capsule of hydroxytyrosol is, you know, hundred bottles of olive oil. It's kind of the resveratrol of olive oil, if resveratrol comes from wine. Uh, and literally, I take this stuff every day, and I do that anyway. Just if I was getting sick, I'd be like, I'm doubling down. And I take that stuff every day because I used to weigh three hundred pounds, because I had arthritis when I was fourteen. And you've seen my my uh, unusual genetics, uh, and you've you know you know my health history because we've talked about it. So I'm not telling everyone to take this stuff. I'm just saying. You should have a stack of things that stop IL-6 because if you're starting to go down this inflammatory cascade, you will know it because you'll feel like shit. Uh, You might want to turn those things up. And by the way, I'm not talking about COVID. I'm talking about any infection that you have. You might want to do this. Like this is how I don't get sick. Antibiotics every month for 15 years. uh, I don't have to do that anymore because I learned those tricks.
0: And, and Dave, you know, it's worth mentioning that from the pharmaceutical perspective, again, this is not the prescription, but it's to highlight the point that Dave is making. The sort of off-label use drugs that now everyone is clamoring, everyone meaning the medical agencies and associations, to try to see if it works. They're all colchicine, anti-inflammatory, hydroxychloroquine, the, the drugs that we're testing for the COVID and to try to quiesce the cytokine storm. They're all, at their core anti-inflammatory IL6 modulators at the end of the day. So what Dave is what Dave is saying here is so important. I do want to emphasize, Dave, forgive me, there is the difference between prophylactic and acute symptomology. Because it's,
2: it's really important and I haven't said that enough, probably okay, here's what I take you know regularly uh, because I don't have it. If I'm sick, I I radically ramp up vitamin C. So if, if you're saying I'm gonna do the same thing when I'm sick as when I'm well Look, you probably don't work out when you're really sick. <laughs> like it these are just different states of the body. So so thank you that I I've not been saying that enough and I'm going to steal that from you in other shows and just remind people because um you're you're hitting something so critical.
0: It's homeostasis, right Dave? At the end of the day we're striving to be homeostatic as best as optimal homeostasis as much as, much as we can.
2: Right. I'm about to do a an Instagram rant. I've been recording some some thoughts of things like this that I have, but I want to I want to gut check it with you and share it with listeners here before it goes on on Instagram. Um, I look at this uh, uh, this idea that we can flatten the curve. So we say, okay, if everyone gets sick and goes to the hospital all at once, we'll run out of hospital space, and it's going to be really bad, and more people will die from lack of hospitals. So. Our, our best and brightest are saying, oh, you know what we're going to do? We're going to have the same number of people get sick and the same number of people go to the hospital, but because we space them out better, uh, then less of them will die because we'll have more ventilators available. That, that's pretty much the flatten the curve strategy. And in order to buy the strategy, we'll just basically destroy our economy by 50% for uh, at least six months and probably for several years. Um, my take on this is that that's stupid. Because our goal should be not to flatten the curve, it should be to reduce the area under the curve because that's the number of people who get sick. And if you want to talk about the number of people who are hospitalized, what if we could make it so everyone got sick, but only 1% of people were even hospitalized? Like That's the goal. It's area under the curve. Whether people get sick three months from now or they get sick this month isn't that important compared to whether if they get sick, they are just not that sick. And it seems like IL six modulation, the way we just talked about. Oh, and statins will modulate IL six too. Like we can come on, drug companies, you guys, there's money on the table for you. Come on, get more people on statins. You guys have to have to do that. Like, I don't care how we do it, but doesn't it feel like medically, genetically, there's some stuff we could do?
0: One hundred percent. What what, what, are, what are the things? What what are we missing? You you know, let me just, let me just, I do, because it would be hypocritical of me not to say this. When I first started to play, you know, you you talk about the herd immunity, I I must say the emotive gut response is, oh my God, but we don't know what we're dealing with. We don't know how many people that if we try to do this, i.e. not just flatten the curve, but reduce the area under the curve, what are we doing? How many people are going to end up dying from this and so on and so forth. So I must say to not be hypocritical, I was very hesitant at the concept. However, when you start looking at if we let this thing go, if we just keep tagging on another two weeks, another two weeks of self-isolation, of we're going to try to jumpstart the economy. In other words, what I'm trying to say is not make a solution, but I am trying to w- raise awareness now as to there has to be other ways that we should approach this because we're not looking at the ripple effect. Number one. Po- Number two. Poverty
2: is a disease.
0: <laughs> it's, it's, you know, and, and, it, and it lasts much longer than two weeks. Okay, so 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 when you get to that realization, it's not it is not to allow all of us go outside and let's throw you know parties trumping down the street, but it is to the agencies to, like you just said, hold ourselves to a new standard where we go, listen, we cannot just keep doing the same thing and expecting a different result. Okay, because this here's the point. I heard if we were going to do self- you know when self-isolation works, Dave? When it is policed over two to three weeks when you go you know what for two to three weeks nobody leaves their house you do that and you can make a dent into this baby but the half approached self-isolate really you're just slowing down something you're actually increasing the area under the curve as you so why you've you so intelligently and appropriately pointed out okay so that's just an overriding statement there I actually we do have to start thinking more innovatively because, one more piece of factoid. Got to say this, Dave. We are being, we are misinterpreting the mortality percentages of this virus. <laughs> yes. So please, we've got to, okay. how do you determine, okay, 5% people die from this virus? No, no, no. You get 5% because they go of the 100 people that were confirmed with the virus, meaning test confirmed five died, or two died, or one died. That's your percent mortality. However, the real percent mortality is five, not out of a hundred, but out of the 10,000 or 1,000 or 7,000, the real number of people that got the virus, which we actually don't know right now, what we do know is that it is way more. So the the people listening, for the Canadians, for our population, for the U, whomever is listening, when you see that number that says in the news release, now confirmed 125,000 cases in such and such country. That's 125,000 people that got ill enough or were privileged enough to get the test. There is an exponential number above that that have the virus that are either fully asymptomatic or passing it off as just an allergy that they had or a common flu or whatever the case might be. So we've got to get more realistic. And this is part of what's frustrating me as the hysteria cycle that we're driving. So it's all related, Dave.
2: There's a, a video I just put up on uh, on my YouTube channel, the Dave Asprey channel. It's relatively new. Uh, and it's also on my Instagram on the main page. And I call it Pandemic Math. And I actually found the data. And this is from the SARS outbreak, which is another coronavirus, right? And they initially said, oh, it's going to be somewhere around 3.5, 4% uh, fatality rate into the world, into the world. So two years later, when they actually got population-wide data, this no one knows at first how many people have it. And there's no way to know it. So that's the real number to go with. Since they don't know it, they go with the number they know, which is a fake number. It is a very small, only the only people tested. So uh, what they f- they did is they went from oh three and a half four percent all the way down to point zero two percent. So there's a sixty five times reduction after they got the math. Sixty five times. And so if you say oh my goodness you know up to five percent of people with COVID which is a very high number you know could could die based on current numbers. Well that's because they're testing people who are already in the hospital and they got in the hospital because they already had diabetes and heart disease and cancer and God knows what else right. So. Yes, it, 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 we don't know that number, and it may be higher than, than we like. It may be 1%, but it probably isn't anywhere near that high just based on the fact that the current alarmist numbers that everyone knows are bad math, um, that those are not 20%. If we were saying 20% of all people who got it were passing away, it'd be very different. Of course. Uh, of course. It's just not there. Not to say, I, I, it, I don't want to encourage people to leave their house and all that stuff, like social isolating is important, and it is. It's still probably not twenty percent, but it's probably closer to five or ten percent in aging populations. And if you're a high risk, like in Italy, you're over eighty and you have an average of three pre-existing conditions, yeah, it's it's highly fatal in that. Of course, so is the flu.
0: Absolutely. So, so none of this is to up. None of this, certainly from mine. And I know Dave isn't saying the same. None of this is to counter the appropriate measures. But it is to say, we've also got to tone down the hysteria here. We've got to be more realistic with the communities. Now, I guess what the government agencies are facing is if they try to, how do you get people to listen to you if they don't feel that something's important, then you have to balance that against the whole disaster that is unfolding in terms of our economy. I mean, and I, you know, much smarter individuals than myself will talk about that. But I am, as just an average person, looking at what is happening here. And I'm looking from a scientific perspective and saying, per the mode of action, per the after effect, do these two things line up? And I'm starting to question if that's the case.
2: I I don't believe they do. I'm not even questioning it. Um, But that's all right. I'm I'm still socially isolating for a few weeks. I don't think that doing this for as long as it as, as we might be asked to do it, is going to be in anyone's long-term best interest. Um, but uh, w- you know, time will tell.
0: And ultimately, Dave, someone asked me, is there a silver lining here? And, and, and I'll say, you know what the silver lining is? This has created a shockwave in our communities and our societies that we cannot lead lives that, live a, that leave us just, we will depend on acute care whenever we need it. This is going to reinforce that we've got to take better control of our health, because the f- the comorbidities here for bad outcome of COVID are most often, not always, basal health concerns. The type of health concerns that you can address, not just by going into a walk-in clinic, but by taking ownership of your health. Taking ownership of your health will lead you on a path that at least, we're not saying that you'll never get ill. We're not saying that you won't get COVID, but it will certainly put you way better and safer for you, your loved ones, so so there's a silver lining. The silver lining is, this is going to wake up people, I think, I hope.
2: I, I believe it is. And if nothing else, we're going to look at how much we spend on healthcare and what our outcomes were in the US and go, uh, all of those diseases that make you likely to get this are the ones that are most profitable um, for drug companies. So I'm not saying drug companies um, are evil, except the ones who buy Monsanto. You guys actually are evil, sorry. Um, but uh, aside from that, uh, there's uh, just, look, if you set up a system uh, that's going to maximize profits, it's going to do that. And the, the decision that gets made automatically through hundreds of millions and billions of little decisions is one where, oh, the highest profit area of, of the equation is the one where people have a bunch of stuff they have to take drugs for all the time. And unfortunately, that is not what people want. It's not what's good for humanity. It's not what's good for your soul. Uh, and it's certainly not what's good for making you highly resilient and making you hard to kill, which is what we want to do.
0: And here's another point very quickly, Dave, and that is if I hear anyone else and I'm speaking again, this is from course science, the folks that, you know, the pundits that I don't know who are paid. Well, I kind of think I know who, who they're paid by that come out. There is no benefit in taking vitamin C. There is no evidence of the role of anything. These folks, honestly speaking, who, keep propagating, you know, promulgating. this. To me, I consider them some of the vilest creatures now because you have brainwashed, you have brainwashed a population into thinking if it's not stamped as a pharmaceutical, it has no benefit for me. And by the way, I'm not saying that there isn't snake oil. I'm not saying that there isn't junk out there that people put into their bodies that have no good reason. There is a whole lot of it. But I am saying If you've been so brainwashed into thinking that you get all of your nutrients from whole foods, which is where it needs to start from, absolutely, and that there's no place and no scientific study that shows the benefits of certain micronutrients, I'm sorry, Dave, this is something that we've got to correct because there are clinical studies going out there for all of those ICUs and the hard medicine and they're having to rely on NAC, they're having to rely on IVs of vitamin C, they're having to rely on things that they know work but obviously there are pennies on the dollar compared to, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to go on a ramp- No, rant. It,
2: no, people need to hear this. It, it's important. There's a number of hospitals and I, I interviewed a doctor on Instagram Dr. Ann Shippey Uh, from austin about this and what what she did is she sent a patient to the hospital and they said oh our committee has decided this is a patient who tested positive and was in distress oh oh, oh, our committee has decided that our treatment for covid is we put you on iv fluid and wait until you need a ventilator that's all they were treating because they weren't sure that chloroquine would do anything even though he was already taking it they took him off of it until his doctor intervened from outside the hospital. They didn't do vitamin C. They didn't do any of the stuff you're supposed to do. And get this, the new data that just came out, you might have seen it, it just came out today as we're recording this, says that most people who go on ventilators either die or stay on the ventilator for very long periods of time. You do not want to do that. And, and the reason the hospital's doing that isn't because those doctors don't care. Those doctors care. They're not working these hours, not putting their lives at risk with used masks it's because they're not allowed by their bosses to do the things that they would like to do. And that is unacceptable. Like, let's let's put power back in the doctor's hands.
0: Thank you. Dave, if I'd make a pup suggestion, there's a doctor, Dr. Dave Liepert. He's an amazing anesthesiologist out of Calgary. He's one of the few anesthesiologists, Dr. David Liepert, MD anesthesiologist, and he is the one raising the, you know, by the way, introducing lidocaine intravenously to help dramatically reduce the, the cytokine storm. Lidocaine. Oh, smart. Yeah, of course. By the way. And so, so if you want to talk to someone at an MD, just brilliant level who is not confined by the, well, I, I, I won't use colorful language. He's someone you should speak to and he can really educate your audience.
2: Will you introduce me? Oh, and speaking of lidocaine, I have another hack. You want to know this one? You could, you could, I, I don't think you know it, and I think it'd be useful for you and everyone else. Go for it. All right. So I'm so happy you said that. One of the things that I learned, and this came from uh, Northern California Craniofacial Clinic, Dwight Jennings, who's been on the show, first 100 episodes, going way back. It's a dentist who looks at substance P and systemic inflammation from bite alignment. He was in uh, one of the chapters of Superhuman. And he taught me this, like, that was like 15 years ago. If you're just starting to get a cold, i.e. any virus, and you feel that tickle in the back of your throat, you take 5% lidocaine, you can use solar cane, anything like that, and you put it all over your forehead, all over your trigeminal nerve, all over um, both sides of your neck, your chest, and, and the back of your neck. Because guess what's right there? The trigeminal is very close to the vagus nerve, which innervates the entire body and lidocaine stops inflammation of nerves. That's one of the reasons it's probably working intravenously. So, you smear the topical stuff on, and magically, and this actually works. You can turn a cold around if you do it in the first maybe two to four hours, and it's just by turning down substance P and all of the stuff. And trust me, the IL-6 and all of the cytokines are way downstream from substance P, but they cannot exist without substance P. So, lidocaine is a badass intervention intravenous I never even thought of that but just topically you can do that when you're starting to get a virus and it may fix it but it I, I've had great results with that in fact I have a uh, spray like hospital grade what they would do before sutures I have that stuff because hey, my wife's an ER doctor uh, and man that stuff is amazing
0: I'll make I'll make I'll make the introduction to you
2: Monsor. thank you for coming on from the DNA company uh, I am a huge fan of what you're doing. The fact that you've looked at my genes, you've sent me my report uh, way ahead of all of this. So I actually know way more about my lung permeability and my susceptibility and all. It makes me feel like I have more control over my own biology. So th- thank you for that. That's just a plug for the work you're doing uh, and for the information you're sharing about genetics in a way that I have never seen anywhere else. And, and thanks for your wisdom and knowledge on the show today. It, it's, it's been fascinating and helpful. Thank you
0: absolutely an honor, Dave. The truth of it is I learn more every time I speak to you than you probably learn from me. So thank you. Thank you. You're, you're welcome.
2: Go. Your website, thednacompany.com. Very easy to remember. And people can find out more about your work there. And I don't know, are you guys even doing uh, uh, active testing or is the lab shut down because uh, it's being used for other things?
0: Well, we're temperately, we've actually now switched all of our efforts into the COVID response. We're doing some cool things, Dave. We've just gotten the first rapid Class 1 Health Canada approved for an app that we're creating, Dave. All right? So, which But this app is not going to be asking you just the normal questions of viral infection symptoms. It's going to be bringing in all of these, the, the, the ripple effect things that people need to be aware of. So we're very proud of it. I'll make an introduction to David Leap, one of the brightest forward-thinking doctors that i've met and dave it's an absolute honor always
2: thank you very much mansoor see you soon bye-bye Bye.
1: a human upgrade formerly bulletproof radio was created and is hosted by dave asprey